Hey friends, welcome to the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. I'm Gwen DeSelm, your host for this weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and put into practice. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry and was the founding senior pastor of a church called Fellowship in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering help and hope to everyday pastors through coaching and other resources. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. Well, a common storytelling device is the flashback. I mean, we're all familiar with it, right? The flashback gives us a chance to see a part of the story that took place in the past, but has enormous bearing on the present. That's kind of what Revelation chapter 12 is, a flashback in this story of the end times that gives us important information that helps us understand what's really going on. So let's join Dave now for The Conflict of the Ages. One of the central themes of this book has been the cosmic conflicts that's been going on down through the years. The battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, between really life and death. And we have a pause here, a parenthesis in chapter 12 of this great book we've been moving our way through, which allows us to take a peek. God pauses, and through a vision given to the Apostle John, he he parts the curtains and lets us actually go backstage. And what you're about to see is a backstage view of the conflict of the ages. You're about to get a peek at where the real struggle takes place. If you have your Bible there, I want you to follow along as I read you the first nine verses. All right? Revelation 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars in her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Okay, everybody clear so far? (laughs) Some of you are thinking... Now, this is why I never study Revelation. This is just why I never study Revelation. What in the world is going on here? Let me see if I can bring some clarity to this thing here. But here's a couple preliminary observations. First of all, understand what you have here in chapter 12. John's vision is not a foretelling of history, but a disclosing of the spiritual struggle which lies behind history. 
So far, we've kind of been studying about what's going to happen, what's going to happen. We've talked about the Antichrist and the tribulation and last week the rapture and all this kind of stuff. But understand that what we have here, John is saying, that I'm not gonna, this is not to come. This is disclosing of what happened already. Secondly, John's vision is recorded in the order that he saw and heard these things, not in the order in which these things happened. That is to say, these nine verses are not in chronological order. So for you linear thinkers here who think, okay, first verse, this happened first, second verse, this happened second, don't think that way. In fact, really, as you'll see in a moment, we're going to start with verse 7. Verse 7 really is the first thing if you want to go in order here, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But you've got to understand these two introductory thoughts here um, before we go any further. I also want to introduce you to the players in this great struggle, okay? There are three key players here in this Revelation 12 account. There's the woman, a dragon, and a child. Most Bible scholars are convinced of the fact that the woman represents faithful Israel. Faithful Israel, or God's faithful people, if you want to go broader than that, okay? With a crown of 12 stars on her head, that is probably a symbol of, of the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? She personifies a people group to which the Messiah was promised and through which the Messiah would come. Now, we know that really the woman ended up being Mary, right? She birthed Jesus. But don't think about the woman in this thing here as Mary herself. Rather, the people group, the Jewish people group, that's the woman here of which Mary was the specific instrument of Jesus' birth. The dragon, of course, uh, that shouldn't surprise you, that symbolizes Satan. Again, keep in mind, friends, this is apocalyptic literature, and as such, we said it's highly symbolic don't lose your ball in the weeds. You're thinking, okay, what are the number of heads and the, throne and, the, and the horns and the crowns and all that jazz there? We could talk a length about that, but that speaks about his power. It speaks about his power. So a political and military power. That's all you need to know about as it relates to the dragon to keep this clear. Finally, we have the male child, the woman's son, and that obviously represents Jesus the Messiah. Okay? Those are the players in all of this. Now, having identified this, I'm going to read you the next section of verses, beginning in verse 13. Then we're going to go back and try to make sense of it all. And I want to spend the majority of our time, though, applying this to our lives. So let's drop down to verse 13. We'll pick up verses 10 to 12 a little bit later. I'm still in Revelation 12, now in 13. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for time, times, and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let me pause to say that an explanation of, of the details here could easily be a whole sermon series. So I'm really going to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version of an explanation of here, as I said, which could go into great, great detail. Let me see if I can explain this to you. This chapter begins back, back, back. I sound like Chris Berman, don't I? Back, back, back. Uh, back, back, back in time. Uh, and really, it begins in verse 7, all right? 
The fact of the matter is, as you know, Genesis 1-1 says that when God created the world, he declared everything good. That is to say, early on, there was no evil in the universe. There was no evil anywhere. There was no sin. There was no Satan. No demons. It was all good at the very beginning. There were various ranks and orders of angels at that time. The highest level of angels in the Bible are called archangels. There are only two archangels named in the Bible. Anybody know what their names are? Michael is one. The other archangel, not Gabriel. Gabriel is simply a communicating angel. He's never called an archangel. The other archangel is called Lucifer. Michael and Lucifer are the highest levels of angels. We don't, we don't, there are probably other archangels, but they are the highest level. We read in Isaiah 14, verses 12 and following. You didn't turn to it, but you might want to read it in your own. Isaiah 14, 12 and following, and Ezekiel 28, that a time came when Lucifer determined that he wanted to be on a level with God. When that happened, what prompted it, how it entered into him, we aren't told. But the fact of the matter is one of the archangels determined that he would vie for glory in heaven. And you can read Isaiah 14, 12 and following in Ezekiel 28, which speak about this incredible rebellion that took place. Apparently, as we bring now that to mess with Revelation 12, that set off a civil war of sorts in heaven. That is seemingly what's alluded to in verses 7 to 9 here in this text. This war that took place in that rebellion. Looking back to verse 4, where a third of the stars are swept down, stars can represent angels. When Satan fell from heaven, he took one-third of the angels with him in this great rebellion. They were given the boot from heaven, and now they've been kicked to earth. Lucifer has been renamed and now is called Satan or the devil, and that one-third, millions of dark angels are now the demons who prowl this earth. Revelation 12 gives us this picture of what happened in this great civil war in, in, in heaven, okay? When history kicks in, human history kicks in, in, in Genesis 2 and 3, we already have the devil on earth. He's disguised in the Garden of Eden as what? The serpent. See, his goal was this. If I can't get the glory that I desire then I will destroy that which God loves most. And God won't get glory from people either. Did you realize that's the great battle? It's for glory. God has all the glory, and he created people who will glorify him. And Satan thought, if I can't get the glory, then I will destroy those who could give God glory. I will take God's glory away. I will strip him of that which he loves most. That is what is behind the temptation of Genesis chapter 3. Make no mistake about it. Adam and Eve were simply pawns in the great chess game. The battle was that Satan could destroy that which God loved most. And you know the story. How in that great struggle, Adam and Eve fell. Things looked bad. It looked like God's plan was ever a death blow. But back in Genesis chapter 3, as God shares the implications of the fall with Adam and Eve, he also speaks to the serpent. And look in the side screens with what he says to this serpent. This is the first promise of Jesus in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, and God speaking, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. 
He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God predicts that through a woman, he will send one who will fulfill his plan. And while Satan will seem to have won a victory by touching the heel of this one, ultimately, this one will crush the serpent's head. The Old Testament, in a nutshell, is an account of God bringing that plan to fruition. And if you read it carefully, you can see throughout the Old Testament how Satan sought to destroy God's people. Because once God called out Abraham and began the Jewish people, the evil one knew, this is the race, this is the people out of which my crusher will come. I must destroy this people, which is why he has hated Israel for all these years. The Messiah will come out of Israel. Read the Old Testament, you'll read how he sought militarily to destroy Israel. Read it deeper and you'll see how spiritually he sought to destroy Israel. If I can't wipe her out as a nation, I will bring her to such a point of compromise that the plan will still be forfeit. This was his plan. This was his plan. But it survived. Now, let's see how verse 4 kicks to that. First part, we see the demons being kicked down. But look at this now. The dragon stood in, I told you this wasn't in chronological order, remember. The dragon stood in front of the woman. The plan now comes. We're now 2,000 years ago. It's Christmas. Look what happens. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child. Does that at all sound like Christmas? Sure it does. What happened the moment Jesus was born? Herod sought to do what? Kill the babies. Again, he was a pawn in this thing here. The goal was to destroy the hope. And Satan sought to use Herod. Verse 5 of this text here, in a, in a remarkable way, capsulizes the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus in one verse. It's not John's point to share that with us. Verse 5 simply runs through his life. Again, reading it to you, she gave birth to a son, a male son, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. He was snatched up to God in his throne. Jesus, birth, life, sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension. He's come to earth. He's now gone. That's the point there, verse 5. Now verse 6, and we leap ahead to the future a bit. The woman fled into a desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. You say, what's that? That is three and a half years. Does that sound familiar? So now we're in the future a bit. And the woman, faithful Israel, is now running to hide because the dragon is now going to fight against her for three and a half years. If you remember our charts, we said about that as well, the persecution that is going to come. All right? Down to verse 13, it also talks about that. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle. And this is, again, very symbolic. It's the protection that God gives his people. She will be taken care of for time, times, and a half a time. You say, what's that? Again, using the symbolism that most scholars are convinced of, that is three and a half years. A time, times, time is one year, times two years, there's three and a half a time. Again, for three and a half years, God will protect faithful Israel. So you can see the symbolism all begin to come together here, all right? Verses 15 and 16, again, highly symbolic and pretty confusing to most commentators. Down to verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. This is faithful Israel. By the way, isn't it interesting as you look around the history of the world, what is the one people that are hated everywhere in the world? The Jews. Have you ever thought about that? What is... 
maybe it's just me, but I find myself, this is, is it illogical. Why hate? Why does everyone hate the Jews? Why Hitler and the Jews? Why Stalin and the Jews? Why they hated the Jews? Believe it, friends. This is the evil one. This is the evil one. He hates the woman. Why in the end does everything go down the temple for the Jews? Why that? It's because he hates them. Because they are the ones who brought the male child. Now, verse 17. He was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Now, who would that be? If Jesus was the first, it's the Christians. We, the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And now it seems to all come together here. We've got a picture of the cosmic battle. From the very beginning, the battle in the heavens, Satan thrown to earth, the struggle to bring Messiah to birth, the struggle after he came to birth. He now does his wonderful ministry, goes to heaven, and now the dragon determines that he's still going to hate the woman, but also he's going to have war against her offspring. And we have Revelation chapter 12. Difficult chapter, believe me, and, uh, but that's the best uh, I can do in explaining it to you. Here's the point of the chapter. John is attempting to tell his people, and I think the Spirit of God is seeking to say to us today, you have to know something, and you've got to know it. You are involved in something a lot bigger than you. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do us a favor and take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. And if this podcast has been a blessing for you, consider giving a gift to Dave DeSelm Ministries. You can give online by going to davedesellministries.org and clicking on the Donate button. We'd also like to invite you to join us on the DDM journey by signing up to receive our weekly update. Get the latest DDM news and a personal word from Dave sent to your email inbox each Monday morning. You can subscribe to the weekly update on our website, davedesellministries.org. Now let's return to Dave and the rest of today's teaching. You are involved in something a lot bigger than you. There is a war going on. It is a huge war. It is a literal life and death struggle between good and evil, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, between God and Satan, and you're in it. And don't think you're not. And it matters more than you could ever imagine. At stake is the eternal destiny of millions of people. And you're in this war. And as persecution began to hit the people in John's day, and who knows what's going to happen to us, we have to understand something. We're involved in this huge conflict that's come down through the years. And the point that John was saying to his people and the point that God wants to say to us is this. You're in the battle. Realize it well. Like it or not, we're in the battle. You're in a battle. Let me ask you a question. Just, and you can respond to this, okay, with your hands. Have any of you at all, ever, in the pilgrimage of faith, you who've come to faith in Christ, have any of you ever found it's hard sometimes? Any, ever? Anybody ever found that it's hard? Okay, let me ask you this question. How many of you have been surprised that it's been so hard, that hard? Anybody been surprised? Okay, yeah. Yeah, 
I'm asked this all the time by people, especially, bless their hearts, new Christians. They come all excited to Jesus. Their sins are forgiven. Their security in heaven is there for them. And they go, it's so hard. It's so hard. I, I came to Jesus and it was a wonderful thing, but it's so hard. It's so hard to resist sin. It's so hard to live a life of faithfulness. It's so hard to be sustained in ministry. I mean, I try to teach my three-year-olds to sit still for the study in the book of Leviticus, and they won't sit still. It's so hard. It's so hard to lead a small group. Why is it so hard to try to lead people to maturity? It's so hard. It's so hard to build a consistent Christ-honoring marriage. It's so hard. It's so hard to be persistent. Of course it's hard. What did you expect? We're in a battle. We're in a war. Of course it's hard. Peter wrote, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. What are you surprised at? We are enmeshed in the conflict of the ages. And there are powers and principalities that are at work around your life, around your home, around this church, and it's to do everything to stop God's purposes from being fulfilled and God's glory from being realized. It's very real. Ben Patterson writes about this. He says, quote, We should not take it personally when we're attacked or tired or depressed. Things like that go with the territory. We're in a spiritual battle. When a soldier is shot at, he isn't shocked. His feelings aren't hurt. He doesn't peek over his foxhole at his adversary and shout, Was it something I said? He expects it. He plans on it. This is spiritual realism. See? Spiritual realism. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time not simply talking about the spiritual battles, but your spiritual battles. That which you can expect to face this week, because like it or not, you're in this battle, and the evil one is seeking to take every person in this room out. Believe it. He's looking to take you out. And if he cannot make you unfaithful to God, he will seek to make you unfruitful for God. Do you hear that? If this week he cannot make you unfaithful to God, he will seek to make you unfruitful for God. And in your unfaithfulness or unfruitfulness, once more, he wins, God loses, Satan smiles. Right? I'm going to give you three strategies that this text speaks about that the evil one uses. Then I'm going to give you a counter strategy that you can employ. Verse 9 is where the first one comes to light. It says, The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. There's the operative phrase, who leads the whole world astray. If you have a New American Standard Bible, yours is rendered, you see on the screen, Satan, who deceives the whole world. The evil one is by his very nature a deceiver. The strategy, obviously, that he employs is deception, which is the first bullet point you have there. Jesus calls him the liar and the father of lies. Lying is his nature. Deception is his stock and trade. So here's what you're going to face this week. You are going to face deception that will seek to make you unfaithful to God or unfruitful for God. And here's how it'll play out. The evil will begin by painting a false picture in your mind. He'll begin by painting a lie to your thinking. 
Thoughts will begin to appear this week in your car, on the job, at your school, in your home. Thoughts, you don't even know where the thought came from. Thoughts of compromise. I'll give you an example. Yesterday was April 15th. Any thoughts come to your mind as to yesterday? All right, tax day, sure, tax day. Ron Blue, a Christian financial expert, get this, estimates that over half the Christians cheat on their taxes. Over half. How could this be? How can it be that we who love Jesus Christ and would seek to honor him, why would we cheat on our taxes? It's really quite simple. You're ready to pay your taxes. You're figuring them. You have no intent on being dishonest. You plan to pay your taxes with joy. In fact, <laughs> you're honored that your government seeks your participation in their wonderful work. It's a wonderful thing for you to pay your taxes. Then all of a sudden, a thought comes to you. You receive some extra income in cash. It is not reflected on your W-2. And if you don't declare it, you won't have to pay tax on it. That's the thought that comes. And soon this thought has little brother and sister thoughts. It's no big deal. You need the money anyway. In fact, you'd be a lot better steward of that money than the government would be. They just wasted on $100 hammers. You know, what you can do is you could, yeah, you could buy a new car which would enhance your witness to your seeking neighbors. Yeah, it'd be a kingdom thing. And before you know it, you've got yourself talked into it. And the more spiritual thing to do is to cheat on your taxes. Where do those thoughts come from? The deceiver. He whispers to you that it really doesn't matter. And he'll do it so subtly, so subtly, that you don't even see it coming. But the fact is, listen, every chain of sin begins with the link of deceit. Every chain of sin begins with the link of deceit. He whispers a lie, and so you cheat in your taxes. How do you counter that? You're going to have to counter it with truth. Deception is countered by truth, okay? What you and I are going to have to do, and the deception is going to come this week, and a variety of things, we're going to have to dare to ask ourselves a question. Is that true? Is it true that it really doesn't matter if I'm honest with my taxes? Is that true? Will that stand before the throne of the living God? Is that true? Is it true that if I cave into sexual immorality, it'll really take away my loneliness? Is that true? Is it true that if I engage in pornography, that it really won't hurt because it's a private thing? Is that really true? Is it true that if I choose to pay back evil for evil instead of forgiving, that I'll feel better in the long run? Is that really true? Every lie that comes needs to be able to have to stand against the truth test. Is it true 
Friends, don't buy the lie. The lie is utterly, uh, to, to, Jesus said, the evil come to kill and destroy. You'll lose every time because it is spawned by the one who will take that lie and another lie, and his goal is to destroy you. And it all begins with the first deceit that you hold into. Cling to the truth. I could talk a lot about that, but let me give you a second strategy. His first strategy is deception. Here's a second one. Intimidation. Intimidation. And I get that out of 12.12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell on earth. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Don't underestimate the power of this one who has fallen to earth. You are no match for him in your own strength. He is no match for Jesus Christ and your relationship with him when it's intact. But he has sought to intimidate, and he will in the future seek to intimidate. Look at 13.4. We studied this some weeks back. Men worshiped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. We talked about that. They worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Other translations rendered, who could possibly stand against him? Intimidation. We study about how in the future, the Antichrist will use political pressure, economic pressure, about buying and selling. We talked about that. Religious pressure, demanding that he be worshipped. He will intimidate. But he also intimidates us in our day. Every day you were intimidated by him. Every day. With a different kind of sin. Call it the sin of omission. You ever heard of those sins? Sins of commission are the things we do wrong. You know what sins of omission are? the things we don't do that's right. John Ortberg has a wonderful line on this. The evil one will use deceit to get you to do what's wrong, intimidation to keep you from doing what's right. He will use deceit to get you to do what's wrong and intimidation to keep you from doing what's right. This is so true. This is so true. Let me talk to you teens for a moment. How big is the intimidation of prejudice in your school. Now, I'm not simply talking racial prejudice, so that's, though that's an issue. How about the prejudice of who you will spend time with, talk to, and sit next to? You see the one sitting over there who no one sits next to, the one who no one spends time next to, but you know this. If you go have lunch with them, if you engage in conversation with them, if you spend time with them, why, you could be identified with them. You'll be classified as one of them. And you don't want that. And the intimidation, stay with the beautiful people. Spend time with the beautiful people. Where'd that come from? That's straight from hell. It's straight from hell. Intimidation to keep you from doing what's right. It's a terrible thing. We may not think this is as evil, but you know something, friends? I'm convinced. Prejudice, racial and otherwise, economic prejudice, intellectual prejudice, racial prejudice, it is every bit as evil as sexual immorality. It is a horrific thing to deem some people as less because of their intellect, their athletic ability, their skin color. God hates it. But the enemy subtly intimidates us to behave otherwise. 
Now, I've come to see that for me, believe me, much of my sin is not in the wrong things that I do, though believe me, there's a lot of wrong stuff that I do that's pretty dark. You know where, to my, where much of my sin is? It's the good stuff that I don't do. The good stuff I don't do. The courageous words that stick in my throat. The generous gifts that never leave my pocket. The bold witness that remains silenced. The acts of service that go undone. That's my sin. All because the evil one whispers, you better not risk it. That's not safe. That'll cost you. You don't want to do that. You can't change the world. You're only one person. You can't make a difference. Don't be a fool. Intimidation. In looking to counter this, a quote from Dallas Willard helped me. He writes, most people want to do right, but they're prepared to do wrong. Most people want to do right, but they're prepared to do wrong. Most people really want to walk in truth. Most people do, really do want to walk with moral purity, but they're prepared to do wrong. If it gets tough enough, I'll cave in. So what do you do to counter intimidation? I think you counter intimidation by predecision. Before the temptation ever comes, you determine, here's how I will act. Young people, before you ever go on that date, you know. I will honor Jesus Christ in my behavior tonight. I've already made the decision. I've already made the decision as to when I go to school, who I will look for and spend time with. I've already made the decision. I've already made the decision how I'm going to take this action, how I'm going to give that money, a commitment to Christ beforehand. Okay? Quickly moving on. Deception, intimidation, and here this is a third one. Accusation. Accusation. And it comes from 1210. The accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. This one is so ironic. The evil one deceives us and then intimidates us to do wrong, right? And so we cave, we give, we fall. And then, then... He spins in his heel, and now he goes from deceiver and intimidator to what? Accuser. And he says, ha! Look what you did. You call yourself a Christian. You're no Christian. No Christ follower would ever do that. Hey, you may as well give it up. You're a loser. God could never use you. You'll struggle with that all your life. And the accusation goes on and on. You ever, you ever hear that voice? You ever hear that voice? You hypocrite. You ever hear that voice? Friends, that comes from the accuser. It comes from the accuser. And we all fall for it because it hits so close to home. I heard a great story just this past week. I chuckled at it, but there was some truth in it. It's about two young boys, and boy, they were really pistols. They were getting in trouble all the time. And their parents, with their wits end for these two troublemakers, finally they determined, we've got to get some help. They sent the younger boy to a rabbi, okay? And he sat across this huge desk from this rabbi. And the rabbi, for the first moment or two, just sat there just staring at the boy. Real quiet. Finally, he pulled out a bony finger. He said, young man, where's God? And the boy just sat there. 
A moment later, the rabbi said, Young man, where is God? A moment later, he said a third time, Young man, where is God? At this, the kid bolted out of a chair, ran home, found his brother, dragged him upstairs to their bedroom where they normally plotted their mischief, and he said, We're in big trouble. What do you mean? Oh, we're in big trouble. Let me tell you, we're in big trouble. What do you mean we're in big trouble? I tell you, we're in big trouble. God's lost, and they think we did it. (laughs) There's something inside of us that is so susceptible to accusation, isn't it? And all too often, it seems like God's missing, and I did it. God will never forgive you, not this time. How many of you have prayed this dumb prayer? And it's a dumb prayer. Having fallen, you said, God, I'll never, never, never do that again. And then when you do it again, how quick is the accuser on your case? It's a dumb prayer to pray. Here's a better prayer. God, by your grace, may I walk in obedience today. Accusation. So, Some of you are living in that right now. You know, you're sitting in this room and you are so weighed down by how you torpedoed a marriage. Of how a moral decision you made ruined your family. And you are living under this weight of this accusation right now that is so big. And the enemy is having a heyday with you, seeking to shelve you. How do you deal with accusation? You deal with it, you counter that. With the cross. With the cross. The only way I know how to handle accusation is to spend a lot of time at the foot of the cross. When we look at the cross, it provides an effective antidote for accusation. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. When I look at the cross... How can I look there at Jesus' sacrifice and say that wasn't enough? That wasn't big enough for this sin of mine. How can I do that? I can't. It was big enough. And when the accusation comes, you just go back to the cross and you realize how big it was. Which now as we wrap this thing up in verses 11 and 12, look at how John speaks about overcoming They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and word of their testimony. The battle of the ages has waged throughout eternity. We're in it. We may very well see the curtain finally come down for the very end chapter, but until then, We're in it. Remember the strategy. Remember the counter strategy. And let's walk in victory. Thank you so much for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSalm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.